demons, the devil, deliverance, and the children of God. I uh, pretty well announced. Now, if you only come at night and you didn't hear the announcement last Sunday night or this morning, I announced that we would be a little bit longer in the study just tonight. And I feel for you if you, if you weren't forewarned. Um, but it's the way it is. You're just going to have to come to terms with it. And the reason is, um, tonight's study sort of lays an explanation, a foundation for, for all that will follow. There is quite an emphasis uh, in, in certain corners of the church where there's uh, Christians engaged in spiritual warfare. I, I need to maybe start by saying... I'm not a pastor who doesn't believe in spiritual warfare. All right? That, let me be clear. I believe that there is such a thing as spiritual warfare, and it's important, so important, that it needs to be biblically defined. It, it can't be left just up in the air to, well, I was at this meeting and I saw this, or I read this book and I heard somebody say this, or... That's too flimsy a foundation for something as important as this. The text I'm going to start with is Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. I'll have a number of texts, so I hope in one form or another you have some way of of following along, either on your iPad or your iPhone, or if you're old school, you you might even have one of these still somewhere kicking around, and uh, you can use... I prayed about it, and the Lord told me we can still use these if we want the paper-bound Bibles. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. One other thing. Sorry. In in, um, critiquing isn't the right word. I just can't come up with a better one. Critiquing sounds harsh or judgmental, and I don't mean that. In critiquing what I think I see some people doing, I'm not in any way trying to be harsh. It's not my job. You know, I I pastored this little church here uh, in this corner of the kingdom, and and God can look after the rest. So I'm not trying to be uh, a know-it-all, okay? And I'm not trying to be divisive, and I'm not condemning anyone. There are good Christians in the kind of movements that I'm going to be talking about tonight. So, y'all understand that, okay? I'm, I'm not saying, oh man, this is a cult or blah, 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 but I, I just think that some things are getting a little bit off base. Now the text. Finally, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's where Peretti got the title for his books. Remember years ago, this present darkness? That's where it comes from. Against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. You have to know the truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's the work of Christ on the cross. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That has to do with the fact that we're not only saved, we're all commissioned, every one of us. God wants you putting one foot in front of another all the days of your life, expending serious energy in building his kingdom on earth. That's not just the pastor's job or the missionary's job. You might be a shoe salesman or a car salesman or an architect or a lawyer, a business person, whatever you are, retired, your feet, get them going. The stuff to do for Jesus. 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is uh, the Word of God. Know this book. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints, also for me, that's Paul, that words may be given to me. There's Paul. He's not saying just live the Christian life and when necessary use words. He's saying pray that I get the right words. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That's a great phrase, isn't it? an ambassador in chains. I'm in chains, but still an ambassador. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The stance Paul takes in this text, we're not going to unpack the whole text tonight, is one of withstanding the devil. Withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand firm. That's that's 13. So that's kind of an important verb to note. As believers, we take our, our stand in the power of the gospel to withstand the work of the devil in our lives. We don't expel the enemy. We withstand the enemy. And that fits, of course, with James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. You don't expel him. Resist him. What will he do? He'll flee. Now, through the centuries, Christians have always believed that to be the truth. The the historic stance of the Christian church with a few brief uh, abnormal blips has always been to recognize the reality of the devil, to resist temptation... Temptation through the world, temptation to our fallen desires, to resist his plans to thwart God's purpose in our lives. I did a series, it's online, Learning to Resist the Devil. Something has begun to change in a movement that has come to be known as the spiritual warfare movement. It's waning. It always does. It's like the word faith movement. Pick any of these things. They, they gather a, the vineyard movement. Remember when that was the biggest thing in the world? 
When's the last time you heard anything about the vineyard movement? Like just, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying, think about that a little bit. That this is what happens in the church, okay? Always has, always will. So the spiritual warfare movement. It's come about because, and this is what we're going to look at tonight. Believers are now being taught. There are recognized systematic courses. Cleansing stream would be just one example, though not the only one. Where believers are actually taught that demons work inside the soul of the believer. Many times, believers are taught that there's a need to actually speak directly to demons either in their own being or praying and ministering to other Christians who have demons in their souls. The speaking out loud is usually, not always, usually said to be necessary because unlike God, the devil and demons can't read our thoughts. And if you want to communicate anything to demons, you have to do so out loud. I had a pastor in Newmarket, I won't say who, but pastor in Newmarket took me out and explained to me how the demons work and and the need to identify which demons are over which parts of Newmarket and to recognize their names and to learn to speak to them because they can't read your thoughts. And I, I just... We walked right around here. And I just said, you have to be kidding. Is this how you spend your time thinking and worrying about these things? And we talked about it for quite a while. But it's very common. It's very common. So, what we're doing tonight is, in this first teaching, I want to look at the background that that, um, makes the spiritual warfare movement possible. There is a certain framework that makes the rest of the teaching possible. You have to understand. I know it's not normal Sunday teaching material. You have to understand the framework that makes spiritual warfare theology as we're going to define it, it makes it possible. So to really understand what's going on in all of this emphasis on spiritual warfare, demons and believers, you need to understand the theology behind it that makes it work. And here's why. When you read your New Testament, thinking Christians... Thinking Christians have to be able to put some things together. You have to be able to do it for yourself. Here's what you'll notice if you read your New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. What you'll notice is this. You'll notice Jesus in his ministry and the disciples. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then after his ascension, as the gospel spreads, the book of Acts. All right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Then put a division. What you have up to that point is, as the gospel is proclaimed, as the kingdom of God encounters the darkness of this world, you can't possibly miss the fact that there's demons all over the place. You've read the gospels, right? Jesus is constantly encountering demons. And then you get into the book of Acts and you have the apostles as they take the gospel out from Jerusalem, breaking new ground, and they're casting out demons. It's loaded with it. Then, 1 Corinthians on. You have epistles written to the church. All right? To Christians. And here's the thing. 
Get your concordance in check. In, from the moment you have any instruction given to believers in the church, demons are not mentioned in the rest of the New Testament. Have you ever noticed it? Not once. Satan, the devil, the way he works to tempt and corrupt. Paul talks about the devices. We're not ignorant of his devices. So when you talk about Christians and their ministry, there's not a word in any of the rest of the New Testament. Here's how you cast out demons. Why? Why is that missing? So, if there's a movement that now says, this is a major part of ministry among believers, someone has to explain to me why that doesn't fit the New Testament pattern. I'm not interested in this person or that person or this book or that book. I'm I'm interested in this book. And making sure that our thinking fits the pattern. So, if there's a movement that makes much of this when the New Testament, in regard to the Christian church, makes no mention of it, I want to know why the change. Okay, everybody understand? You're all with me? All right. That's what we're looking at. Point number (laughs) one. The burgers should be on low out there. That's what I would suggest. Just The foundation of much of the modern emphasis on spiritual warfare against the demonic forces in the Christian lies in a distorted description of the makeup of human beings. That's the point. We're going to spend most of this first teaching on that. Let me explain. Warfare theology is based on this assumption. It's based on the assumption that, and this is common. Now, this is the foundation for the demonic work among believers. That's what I'm calling the spiritual warfare movement. It is based on the assumption that you and I, as persons, we are made up of three parts. You have your physical body. Secondly, you have your soul, which is usually said to be made up of your mind, your will, your emotions. Remember that. Soul means mind, will, emotions. The other part of you is your spirit. The part of your being that relates to God directly. Where the Holy Spirit? You're a temple of the Holy Spirit, but the part of you that the temple resides in is your spirit. This is what they teach. This is not New Testament teaching, I don't believe. But this is what they teach. So when you were saved, the Holy Spirit came into your spirit. And they'll find verses. His spirit bears witness with our spirit. That we are children of God. Romans. So the Holy Spirit, he came into your spirit and your spirit only. Never mind that Paul actually says your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that part of your being, your spirit, was was instantly set apart for God and made holy in every respect. This is where the Holy Spirit now dwells deep in the core of your being. This is his temple, his dwelling place. This is where you cry out to God. This is where God speaks to you and touches you personally. It's your spirit. But you also have a soul, remember? Mind, emotions, will. And that soul part of you is not yet totally redeemed. The soul is where you think, it's where you feel, happy, sad, fear, 
It's where you respond to so much of the world around you. You have experienced past hurts and wounds and difficulties. You may remember all of these, you may not. But this is the important point. In warfare theology, the Christian's soul, this is the territory for potential demonic strongholds. This is where the devil pulls the hooks and strings that keep Christians in bondage against their will. Demonic strongholds, warfare theology teaches, must be ejected from the soul of the believer. Now, this view, you need to know the name of. This is called a trichotomist. Everybody say it. Trichotomist. It's called a trichotomist view of the human person. Tri, obviously. Three parts. So you are body, you are soul, you are spirit. Spirit saved instantly. When the Holy Spirit comes into your being, your body, well, you know, it ages, it gets corrupt. The soul, the part of you that thinks and feels and wills, that's where you can get all messed up with demonic strongholds that get into your being. Now, does that work? I mean, does it work biblically? Well, there are passages, point number two, there are passages that are used to support this trichotomist, remember? This trichotomist definition of human beings. Now, please understand. I want to say right off the bat that the Bible does use all of those terms in describing human personhood. They're all biblical terms, body, soul, spirit. The Bible talks about our bodies. The Bible talks about our souls. The Bible talks about our spirits. Lots of times each of these terms is used in the very same verse. And here are some of the best known and strongly used verses in the spiritual warfare movement. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole, here it is, spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there it is, Pastor Don. Let's go home. Right there, body, soul, spirit. Look at Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of, here it is, soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the Bible talks about our bodies, the Bible talks about our souls, the Bible talks about our spirits. Not an argument in the world against that, but there's a problem. You wouldn't see it just looking at those verses. And that's always the problem. Because while the Bible does mention our bodies and our souls and our spirits, it uses those last two terms, soul and spirit, it uses those absolutely interchangeably to describe different things. In other words, everything the Bible says about the soul, sooner or later, it says about the spirit. And everything that it says about the spirit, it says about the soul. Those two terms are used as synonyms to describe the invisible part of you. So you've got a body, we know that, but there's something else. And the Bible uses several different terms, 
specifically soul and spirit, to describe the invisible part of your personhood. I personally think the Bible only talks about two parts. I would be a dichotomist. There's the outward, visible, material part, and there's the inward, immaterial, invisible part. And that inward part, this is the outward part, but the inward part, the inward part is described by as many as three or four different names. Okay, I know now I'm stretching things a bit in terms of what people should endure in a church service. But it is, it's so important that I thought I'd risk it, okay? So try and stay with me just a little bit more. Trichotomists say your body Soul, spirit. Now, like I said at the beginning, soul is made up of thoughts, emotions, and will. That's the soul part of you. Those things define the components of your soul. This is in their literature. If you go into cleansing stream literature, it's charted, it's mentioned, it's, it's very specific. Because they need this. You need this to make demonic strongholds in the Christian a possibility. Because the New Testament doesn't go there. So there's a problem. The soul. Your thoughts, your emotions, your will. Mark 12.30 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Okay, there it is, soul. But then Jesus says, with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, either Jesus was horribly confused or he recognized what I just said a minute ago. Those terms aren't used rigidly in the New Testament. You can't divide them up that neatly. They're thrown in over and over again in all sorts of different ways. It's getting confusing. Here are all the parts trichotomists say make up the soul. Mind, heart, will. But Jesus lists the soul in addition to them all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does that mean the soul is something over and above these other parts now? Mind, heart, and will? If you take the words of Jesus as describing the number of components in the human person, then how many parts are there? Jesus lists four, if that's how you're going to do it. And if you throw in the spirit and the body, you got six. And what about scriptures that seem to get even the parts of the soul confused? Sometimes the heart is used as a synonym for the mind. Proverbs 6.18, a heart that devises wicked plans. What's that talking about? Well, it's talking about plans, thoughts, right? Schemes. And it's the heart that is said to be doing it. Or Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. So what's the heart there? Well, the heart and the mind are, are exactly the same thing. So in both these cases for the righteous and the wicked, the heart and the mind are defined as the very same thing. The heart 
is the part that devises. It's the part that ponders. Those are the very words. So here, the heart does exactly what the mind does. But that's not always the way the heart is defined in the scriptures. Look at Proverbs 15, 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feed. Now the heart is described as the the cheerful part, the emotional part. In different places, it's also used to describe sorrow, sadness. So the heart there is the emotions. But in the other parts of Proverbs, the heart was the mind. Which is it? Jesus separates the heart from the mind. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Trichotomists say that the mind is a part of the soul and Jesus separates them. Do you see what I'm doing here? You can't find the compartments in your Bible. They aren't there. This is very important. Everything that is said about the soul in the scriptures is said about the spirit and vice versa. So warfare theology is based on the teaching that the spirit is sort of instantly redeemed and saved at conversion, that this is where the Holy Spirit enters and rules, but the soul is entirely different. The soul isn't redeemed totally, not saved at conversion. The soul has demonic strongholds, usually that need to be cast down. So it's very important. In fact, it's crucial for warfare theology to maintain this distinction between soul and spirit. But the scriptures won't let you do it. Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. When he saw that the city was full of idols. So the spirit, now that's emotions. Anger. See? But emotions are supposed to be in the soul. Here they're in the spirit. Proverbs 17, 22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. So human emotions like anger or sorrow, they're said to be experienced by the spirit just as they are in other verses said to be experienced by the soul. And in fact, the spirit is said to be in need of cleansing and purification, just like the soul. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, clearly, Paul's writing to Christians. I mean, the lost, they aren't interested in having their holiness perfected before the Lord. They don't care about that. So he's writing to Christians. And he says to these Christians, their spirits and their bodies both stand in need of ongoing cleansing and purifying. So... What I'm saying is, the spirit isn't some sacred spot that is instantly converted and cleansed and indwelt. Both terms, soul and spirit, are used to describe the inward part of us that constantly needs ongoing sanctification and growth. Okay, now we're going to start to land. Here's my point. The Bible uses many different terms to describe the invisible part of the human person. The Bible doesn't use precise terms to number the parts. Okay? The Bible does not use 
terms to precisely number the parts of the person. Rather, it uses several different terms to describe the same thing. That's what it's doing. Sometimes it uses many terms right in the same verse, but just as Jesus wasn't numbering the parts of the inward person when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, in the same way, Paul wasn't numbering the parts when he said, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. These are just different ways through repetition of different terms, of emphasizing the need for being totally clean, in and out. The part of my life you see, the part of my life you don't see. It all stands in need of Christ's redeeming work. The writer of Hebrews wasn't numbering the inward parts when he said, 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The context actually makes it clear, doesn't it? Thoughts and intentions. We all know that those are different ways of saying the same thing. Thinking about doing something, intending to do something. Same with soul and spirit. In fact, technically, nowhere does this verse say that the word pierces between the soul and the spirit. The word between never occurs in that text. Rather, the writer is saying, just like Jesus, he's using different words to describe the inward work of the word the depth to which it can penetrate, it, it lays open the soul, it lays open the spirit. It lays the inner person open to the scrutiny and power of the spirit of God. I can fake you out if I look like a good person, I seem to be decent on the outside, but I can't do that with the Holy Spirit. That's what the writer is saying. He looks right inside and slices me open, as it were. My job now is to make you realize that while this might seem like irrelevant nitpicking, it isn't. That clear distinction, trichotomism, body, soul, spirit, totally separate, consistently separate, consistently numbered, three, that is crucial to the whole cleansing stream movement and the whole spiritual warfare movement, and it does not stand up to what the Bible says. But they have to hold on to it. They have to hold on to it, and here's why. Everybody knows that the Holy Spirit and demonic spirits can't, won't dwell together in the same temple. That's why the spiritual warfare movement must, and I emphasize, must isolate the location of each separate from each other. The Holy Spirit is in your spirit. Demonic strongholds in your soul. They have to have those two permanently separate locations. The Holy Spirit rules your spirit. Demonic strongholds take place in the soul. And this artificial division is the only way to make room for the rest of their teaching. 
You have to find some place for demonic strongholds if they're going to cast them out, if you're going to verbally renounce their demonic activity. And if they don't dwell with the Holy Spirit in the human spirit, then they've got to find somewhere else. You need another resonance. Oh, soul. The New Testament won't let you do it. It won't let you do it. There certainly is such a thing as spiritual warfare. We're going to spend a lot of time. We've got four more Sunday nights after this. We're going to spend a lot of time describing exactly what that warfare is. Because as sad as it is, when we, when we distort the location of spiritual warfare, the real tragedy is there's a growing neglect of where the warfare really is. That's the problem. In other words, there's a, there's a spiritual cost to bad theology. There always is. The church doesn't always take the time to process it because it's not a lot of fun. It, bad theology costs lives. It's uncompassionate not to talk about stuff like this in the church. I have two more points. But we're, we're, I have 18 pages of notes and we're, we're up to 14. So like we're flying. Point number three. There is no case of demons being cast out of Christians in the New Testament. I stand by that. I think that's something every thinking reader of the New Testament needs to be able to explain. I mentioned the Gospels are loaded with confrontations with the demonic from beginning to end. Jesus and his disciples are constantly confronting and expelling demons. And then you come to the portion of the New Testament specifically written to the Christian church. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, demons are not mentioned. They're not specifically mentioned once. Satan is mentioned over and over. His tempting work, his corrupting work... Not demons. So I think we need to honor the Lord for this clear distinction. There are cases of demons being cast out of people in the New Testament. Jesus cast out demons repeatedly. He made it a sign of the power and entrance of the kingdom. Luke eleven twenty. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus also commissioned his disciples... To make the casting out of demons a part of their ministry as they preach the gospel to the lost. Mark 16, I won't take the time. Mark 16, 15 to 20, but it's specifically mentioned. They will cast out demons in my name. But each of these cases in those texts, we're dealing with the power of the gospel to reach the lost. And the point is, it will tear down any obstacle. That Jesus' disciples needn't be stymied by encountering bad religion, demonic religion, demonic strongholds as they reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are hosts of people around this world who are demonized. They are under the control and bondage of demonic strongholds, but the gospel can still reach them. The gospel can still reach them. There's a power in it. Now, what the spiritual warfare movement has done, it's taken passages from the Gospels that refer to the work of demons in the unsaved, and they've applied that scenario. They've applied that scenario to any reference to spiritual warfare in the epistles 
with the redeemed. It's kind of a sleight of hand. Because in the epistles, you don't have any mention of demons. So what they do is, whenever there's any kind of mention of, of, of Satan and his work in the epistles, they read backwards and say, oh, see, that's like the demonic that Jesus encountered. But it's two totally separate things. You can't do that. The epistles deal with instruction to the church and ministry to the believer. The gospels deal with the coming of the kingdom into conflict, raw conflict with the lost and the unevangelized. And that's why this instruction about casting out demons is located where it is. It's in the great commission to the reaching of the lost for Christ. We're not meant to confuse those two things. Last point. Why I never think about demons in my quest for holiness. I really mean that. I'm 61 years old. I've been following Jesus for 54 years. And I've not given five minutes to pondering or worrying about demonic intrusion into my life. I mean, I never think about it. No, it's not because I'm really a super strong Christian and don't have to worry about Satan anymore. That's not it. But I have a conviction that this is the way all Christians are to live each day. Talk to people who, who, uh, in this church, told me when they travel, and, and if you want to do this, fine. Told me when they travel, they go to a hotel, you don't know what's going on in that hotel room before you got there, do you? Was there a seance? Was there, who knows what was going on in that hotel before you arrived? And there you come with your wife and you plop your little suitcase on the bed. And this couple said the first thing they do is they kneel down and they cleanse the room of any demonic influence. I must have sounded horrible. I said, really, I'd never even nerves my head. I hit the hotel room and I turn on the TV and have a shower. Why? And that's what I want to talk about now. Let me wrap this up with a couple promises from God's word. And I take them more seriously than almost anything else that I know. Colossians 1, 12 and 13. Paul writes, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you have that text in your notes? Read verse 13 with me out loud. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I used to live in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. 34 years ago, a moving van came, small moving van. I put all my furniture and all my possessions into it, and we moved right across the country to Newmarket. I moved away from where I used to live to a totally different place. And when I came to Christ and he came into my heart and saved me, this text says that I was in one kingdom. And what he did was not just come and polish me up a bit. He grabbed me and took me out of that kingdom and put me in another one completely. I don't live there anymore. I'm nowhere near there anymore. There are hosts of people living under the dominion and sway of demonic darkness in this world for sure. 
but not me. There's nothing special in me. My Bible tells me God just, we moved. We relocated. You know where my citizenship is? Same epistle. It's in heaven. That's just really good. Ephesians 2, 1 to 6. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in, yes, in, but in who? In the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Boy, it would be sad if it ended there. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That excites me. It's as plain as God himself knows how to say it. You moved. You used to walk like all the children of disobedience. That's the unsaved, according to the prince of the power of the air. In fact, that same spirit, singular, still rules the sons of disobedience. Verse 2, but that's, that's not where I live. Something very powerful has happened. He seated me in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now my favorite verse of all. Stole my own thunder because I mentioned it last week. 1 John 5, 18. Read it with me, would you? We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Can you think of a way John could make it clearer? Could you say it more clearly? I wouldn't know how to. God keeps his children. God keeps his children. There are all sorts of things I do have to worry about. The world, the flesh, the devil. He works like a roaring lion. I'm not taking away any of that. It's just there. But I tell you what I don't worry about. There's no demons in here. I'm so glad, aren't you? Jesus didn't say, greater is he that is in you than all the other ones that are in you. And he that is in the world. Oh, there's a battle. There's a battle. We've got more than enough to think about. And it's because that battle is so real that we shouldn't be distracted with things that the New Testament doesn't teach. Now, here are the questions for future study, just so... You're thinking, where's this going? Here are some things we're going to look at. If Christians aren't in a battle with the demonic, what is the spiritual warfare that Paul and James talk so much about? How do I fight this battle? How can I be sure of victory? B, what about groups that teach Christians to speak out loud to demons in order to rid their own souls of demonic influence? Is this necessary? Is it scriptural? C, is it necessary for me to go back into my distant past? People have all this idea now about cleansing the memories and hidden memories and generational curses. 
Is it necessary for me to go back into my distant past to, to sort of uncover forgotten experiences in order to be free from the demonic strongholds, those experiences established in my soul? Is that where bondage actually comes from? How can I be sure I've dealt with absolutely everything? Maybe I missed something. D, what about spirits that seem to have some names in the scriptures? Is there a demon who is the spirit of fear or the spirit of anger? E, if this kind of spiritual warfare isn't scriptural, what about people who report their lives changed through going through a cleansing experience, having something cast out of them? There were voices, there were sounds, there were things that happened. Is that real? How do you explain them, Pastor Don, if you're saying Christians can't be possessed by demonic influence? I just didn't want you thinking we had nothing to do in future weeks.